Romans 1, we're beginning in verse 15, just to get a little bit further back from our text um, and the flow of Paul's thought here. So verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And reptiles. Now we arrive at our passage for today. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I'll stop there as Pastor Kip will be preaching verses 28 to 32 next Sunday. Well, as we preach through whole books of the Bible, it is inevitable that we will come to texts that are more difficult than others. Sometimes it's because they are a genre that is foreign to us, like the whole book of Revelation. That was difficult for some of us to follow along, and we're very thankful for Pastor Worley's work in that. Sometimes it's because they contain customs or practices that are worlds apart from what we do today, like some of the things that we read in the Old Testament. But sometimes it's not because the text itself is unclear or because what it talks about is foreign to us. It's because the topic it addresses is so hotly debated and contested at the cultural moment in which it is preached that to engage such a text can feel uncomfortable, difficult, divisive, dare we say dangerous. When we come to such texts as we preach through the Bible, we find that they test us. They test our faithfulness to Scripture. They test our commitment to what God teaches is true. And they test our courage. They test our courage to live and by what God's Word says in a world where it is increasingly seeming like no one else does. But when it comes to our text for today, the test comes from more than just one direction. It's not just the text that is testing us. For the world and the cultural climate of our day has issued a test 
of its own. I first encountered this test when I was on a mission trip in New York City about 15 years ago. It was the spring of 2008, and I was chaperoning a group of college students during their spring break, along with my wife, to New York City, where we would engage in various inner-city ministries in that city there. And one of the items on the agenda that was created for us and handed to us said, Subway Evangelism. It was the one that made me the most nervous. We went to the subway the day that the subway evangelism was on our agenda where we met a South African couple named Michael and Angela who had felt called by the Lord to leave South Africa and become missionaries to New York City. The subway was where they found their mission field. I don't know what you picture when you hear subway evangelism, but I wasn't picturing what they asked us to do. Michael explained to us in just the softest, sweetest, kindest demeanor that the way they do evangelism in the subway is that they get on the commuter train that's about seven minutes long, and it just goes back and forth between two different destinations. And once they're on the train and the doors have closed and they have a captive audience, they get everyone's attention and they preach the gospel to them. And then he said, I'm going to let you do that today. Which one of you is the leader? All eyes looked at me. He said, we'll let you go first. As we walked and took the escalator down into the subway, you can imagine my heart was beating fastly and I was... uh, wondering how I was going to pull this off. The reality is there's two types of people in the subways of New York who yell to get everyone's attention while they're on the subway. Those who are asking for money and those who have a few screws loose. And I wasn't doing either one of those, hopefully, but they probably assumed at least the latter. Um, And I was getting ready for how I was going to do this. I settled what the gospel was once again in my mind, raised my voice, asked for everyone's attention, and was struck by the number of groans that I heard by those nearest to me. This was not their first rodeo. And I preached the gospel to the best of my ability. Thankfully, I ended it with no bodily harm. And I even had a few people say thank you as they left the subway as the doors opened. But one man was left standing there as other people walked by. And he turned and he looked at me. And he said to me, And what does your Bible have to say about homosexuality? It was clear in that moment that for this gentleman, the litmus test for whether the good news of Jesus Christ was really good news at all, and whether the Bible was trustworthy, and for all I knew, whether Christianity and the church were worthy of any consideration depended entirely upon my answer to that question. What does your Bible say about homosexuality? This experience illustrates the world we now live in. It's a world where homosexuality and specifically in the LGBTQ agenda more broadly, has become the litmus test in our schools, our workplaces, our politics, our media, our sports, and our pronouns. This topic has become the litmus test for who is good and loving and who is hateful and bigoted, who is kind and accepting and who is cruel and out of touch who is worthy of our society's praise and acceptance, and who is to be condemned and rejected. So the test comes at us from two directions. It is a test that has been issued to us by the world, while at the same time, it stands before us because it comes to us from our text. 
and both demand an answer. How we answer will say much about us. For one, it will say much about our ability to speak to and about topics versus speaking to and about people with whom we might have much disagreement. It would be helpful for us as we go into this topic not to assume that it is simply a topic where the lines are drawn between us in here and them out there. We cannot, we should not, assume that this is just a topic between them out there and us in here. We cannot assume that the ideologies of the LGBTQ revolution and the temptations to same-sex relationships and experiences like same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, the feeling that you don't belong in the body that you've been given, are only things that exist out there. We must assume that they also exist in here. And so our answer will also say much about our ability to speak to and about these topics with our very own brothers and sisters in the pew beside us. Well, if we are going to talk to this subject, we need to begin by looking at what Scripture says. You may have noticed that the title for my message today is The Test, The Text, and The Testimony. We have laid out what the test is, and now we move into the text. What does the text say is point number one. Romans 1, 24 to 27 is widely recognized as the text in Scripture on this topic. It is the text because it is unmistakable that some form of homosexuality is being discussed here. That is definitely what Paul is talking about. He's left no doubt in our minds. And as such, it is the text that has received the most debate both in the church and outside the church, as we engage in this topic. It falls in the middle of Paul's argument from Romans 1, 18 to 32, specifically, and more broadly in his argument from Romans 1, 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. It is the argument that seeks to demonstrate the dark backdrop of human sin and depravity upon which the gospel, the jewel of the gospel, will shine all the more brightly when we get to the end of chapter 3. It is Paul's answer to the question that is begging us from verses 16 and 17, why is salvation, why is the righteousness of God only available to us through faith? It is answering the question, why is the gospel good news? Paul paints this dark backdrop in three strokes. In 1, 18 to 32, he demonstrates the depravity of irreligious Gentiles. We've already heard him make that distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. And in 1, 18 through 32, he seeks and he sets out to make clear that Gentiles are utterly depraved, the irreligious among them. Moving into chapter 2 and on into chapter 3 then, Paul turns the argument to the religious, self-righteous Jews, and we see that they too are depraved. It comes to a conclusion in chapter 3 where he concludes that indeed all of humanity is lost under sin. So our passage falls in the first section, the depravity of irreligious Gentiles who, as 1.18 says, suppress the truth and against whom God's wrath is being revealed 
because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness. The point of 1.18 to 32 is to show both why God's wrath is being revealed against irreligious Gentiles and how it is being revealed against them. So that at the end of the day, Paul can conclude that this segment of humanity is without excuse and rightly condemned before a holy God. And where our passage fits into that passage is that it's the point in the passage where Paul turns the corner from explaining why God has wrath and it's being revealed to how it is being revealed, how God is responding in his wrath to sinful humanity. That is what he is beginning to describe in verse 24. And we see that switch over in the phrase, God gave them up. A phrase that occurs three times in verse 24 at the beginning of our passage, again in 26 and then in 28. It is the indication that because of the brokenness and the vertical relationship with God, their rejection of him as God, as the one they should worship, there are horizontal effects of such uh, vertical brokenness. In verse 24, we see that God gives them up to impurity, which is further explained as the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verses 26 and 27, he gives them up to dishonorable passions, which are further explained as homosexual relationships. And then in verse 28, which Kip will cover next week, he gives them up to a debased mind, which is further explained by this long list of sinful vices. And a common theme each time Paul says God gave them up is that the giving up is to broken horizontal relationships. So in verse 24, he gives them up to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It's broken among the horizontal relationships of humanity. Similarly, they're given up to homosexuality. It is the broken relationship with one another, women with women, men with men. So we might ask, what is meant by this giving up? Does this mean that God is responsible for sin? Well, it's not saying that God is introducing them to these sins, nor is it saying that he's leading them into these sins. Rather, it is saying that he is letting them go in the direction that their hearts are already going. That is why we read in verse 24, he is giving them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God is not making them do these things, but he's also not stopping them either. Chrysostom, the church father, says they are like boats that have rowed into the current of sin, and God, in his wrath, has let go of the rope that would keep them from going where sin would take them. He has given them over to what they wanted. He has given them their very heart's desires. And they will reap the consequences of their choices. We see that in verse 27 with the phrase that the due, they re- received the due penalty for their error. They rece- reaped the consequences of their choices. So when it comes to our text today, being handed over to impurity, the dishonoring of bodies among one another in general, and to homosexuality specifically, we should understand these both as two expressions of horizontal sins, sins with and against one another that reflect a a broken vertical relationship with God. They are two examples of sin that God has let sinful humanity pursue and reap the consequences of as a revelation of his wrath against sinful humanity. 
They are two examples of sin that are especially characteristic of irreligious Gentiles in Paul's day. And they are two examples of sin that serve to paint the dark backdrop of human depravity upon which the jewel of the gospel will shine all the brighter. That is what Paul is doing here. But it's at this point that we should acknowledge what Paul is not doing here. Paul is not condemning homosexuals as the worst of sinners. While he is condemning homosexuality as a sin, and I should say alongside other sins in chapters 1 through 3, he is not condemning homosexuals as those who are too far gone, incapable of being saved, or hopeless cases. That is to say, Paul is not encouraging the false stereotype that has existed for far too long in the Christian community. And that's very important for us to understand. It's important because one of the reasons the church is losing people, and especially young people, to the LGBTQ revolution is that we've made them think that their whole lives, through their whole lives, that those in this community are terrible people to be avoided at all costs. And then the day comes when they finally meet someone who identifies as gay or lesbian or bisexual, or trans, or queer. And they find that they aren't that way at all. They find they are kind. They're loving. They're funny. They're wise. They're thoughtful. They're nice to be around. The result being that the stereotype is broken, and they don't trust the church any longer. Paul is not teaching a false stereotype. Homosexuals are not unsavable sinners. But he is listing homosexuality as a sin, among others, from which we can only be saved by faith. The question is still asked by those in the homosexual community, the LGBTQ community, who engage with Romans 1. What exactly is Paul condemning here, though? And that's where we're going to move to next in uh, number two, what is really being condemned. That, as I said, is the question that is being asked by many in the LGBTQ community. What is being condemned here? Is Paul really condemning all forms of homosexuality? Now, one line of argumentation goes this way. It says, what Paul is condemning here is not the mutual, loving, same-sex relationships that are claimed to be found in this community, but rather homosexual acts that sought to exploit one of the parties like prostitution or pederasty. The problem with that argument comes in verse 27, where it says that men were consumed with passion for one another. If there is one word that is the key word in defining what type of sex is okay in our world, it is consensual. And that is what is being described in Romans chapter 1. They were consumed with passion for one another. This is not exploitation. This is consensual. Another line of argumentation states that Paul couldn't be arguing against those who were born with a homosexual orientation because Paul had no understanding of orientation like we have now. But this is also proven to be false because we see in the writings of Plato, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, who predated Paul by many hundred years, the belief that the Greek god Zeus had split the original humanity into heterosexuals and homosexuals from the very beginning. 
they understood God-given orientation. And Paul makes no adjustment to a statement for it. Yet a third line of argumentation states that when Paul says the men and women gave up natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, what he's really talking about is that they gave up what was natural for them. In this case, what they are saying is that natural simply means uncustomary. So what is being condemned is heterosexuals giving up heterosexuality for homosexuality, not homosexuals engaging in homosexuality. Well, we read the context of uh, Romans 1, and the problem that we see here is that as Paul is using this word in Romans chapter 1, what he's doing is he is alluding throughout Romans chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3. It is the retelling of how the creator was rejected by his image bearers in creation with the result that they experienced shame and death. It's a retelling of how humanity has not lived in accordance with their created nature, the nature given to them by God at creation, not just their felt nature, but their created nature, that God created them male and female in the beginning, that God's solution to a lonely male Adam was a female Eve for a lifelong marriage relationship, and that this, this relationship is what was declared to be very good. And this is how we ought to understand what Paul means by natural. This is what was being transgressed. They were going against the created or origin, what God had in design for their bodies, not their felt orientation. This makes the most sense also of Paul's line, dishonorable passions. That is what he uses to describe homosexuality in verse 25. They are dishonorable passions. We cannot be intellectually honest to the text and say that what Paul really means when he says that they were given over to dishonorable passions was dishonorable passions for them. They were given over to dishonorable passions for everyone. So the actions described in verses 26 and 27 can only be understood as the product of sinful passions. At the end of the day, we must understand that what Paul is condemning here is homosexual relationships in all of their forms. Again, not condemning homosexuals as the worst of sinners, but definitely condemning homosexuality as sin. Not condemning those who wrestle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria as beyond help, but condemning as sinners, alongside many other manifestations of sin, those who follow those patterns into sexual relationships with one another, with no exception. It doesn't matter how loving the partners involved are. It doesn't matter how long their commitment is to one another. And it's not because they aren't nice or thoughtful or kind people, but because it goes against God's intended plan for our bodies at creation. Tim Keller helpfully summarizes this conclusion for us when he says, the Bible is clear, both in the Old and New Testaments, that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship and leaves people outside his kingdom, though never outside his reach. Well, we might ask, if that is the case, why is Paul picking on homosexuality. For this community and those who are sympathetic to the LGBTQ community, placing this, context, this topic in the context of such a passage 
feels like it feeds that stereotype. It feels like Paul is picking on homosexuality. So let's move to our third question. Why pick on homosexuality? Here is why Paul zeroes in on this sin. Paul wants us to see something. And what he wants us to see is the truth that truth-suppressing worship leads to truth-suppressing relationships. Remember in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that truth is being suppressed first in their worship. We read that in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We see it again in verse 26. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Truth-suppressing worship, that exchange of idols for God, is then reflected in truth-suppressing relationships. That is why verse 25 begins with, for this reason. For this reason, pointing back to verse, or sorry, verse 26 begins with, for this reason, pointing back to verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The big idea is that when we worship creation as if it were our creator, our worship becomes a lie. When we worship idols, our worship becomes a lie. And when our worship becomes a lie, God gives us over to relationships that are also a lie. And homosexuality is a powerful and clear example, despite what our culture might say, of a relationship that is a lie. It is a lie in that it is not what we were created for. It is a lie like idolatry as an expression of a rejection of our God and his created intended purposes for our bodies. It is a lie that is made clear time and again in scripture and is affirmed in our biology, a biology that requires a man and a woman in order to procreate. And it is a lie that has been taken up and run with by our secular society. It's a lie that our society has taken and run with in telling us that our physical bodies contain no truth about who we are. That our gender is something to be discovered by looking within our hearts, but not in a mirror or at our chromosomes. It's a horrible lie that's being pushed upon us, especially upon our children and on our youth. Now know again that if you are an individual in this room who experiences gender dysphoria, while I am calling this a horrible lie, I am not calling you horrible. I'm not saying this to condemn the one who struggles with gender dysphoria or to push them away. What you experience in gender dysphoria is a very real consequence 
of living in a fallen and broken world. To not feel at home in one's own body is incredibly difficult and confusing place to be. And so the last thing I would want to hear an individual in that place to hear is condemnation. You need the church. You need God's word. You need the gospel. And you need to know that you can't walk this road alone. Furthermore, you need to know that you're not alone. While not everyone in this room is going to be able to identify with that exact same struggle, we can all identify with living a lie. All sin is a lie. For example, anxiety. When we are anxious, we are living a lie about God's ability to care for and provide for us. When we are afraid, we are living a lie about the God who is able to protect us. When we are proud, we are living a lie about who has made us and given us all that we are. So if you are caught in the lies of transgenderism or homosexuality, rest assured that you have plenty of company in this very room. But know also that it is a lie. And a lie to be refuted and rejected, not embraced and accepted as our world would have you do it. It is something that requires us to repent and to believe who God made us to be is bound up in the body that he has given us. And there are many here who I know would want to walk that road alongside you. But let's say you are among those who have become sympathetic to the transgender movement and who uphold its lies and give approval to and even teach them. I would remind you of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, when he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Those words are meant for you. And I would encourage you to repent and turn from such wickedness before it is too late. These first three questions have provided us with the clear conclusion that homosexuality in all of its forms is a sin. This might cause us to wonder if homosexuality is so clearly outside the boundaries of God's created purposes for us, how have we ended up in such different places How have we ended up in such different places between the church and the society at large around us? Well, I don't think it's because we as Christians are so inherently different from our counterparts in secular society. I don't think it's because we as Christians are so far above such things as the lusts of the heart or dishonorable passions. No, we know these things far too well as humans who have been ruined by sin and are acquainted with our flesh. But what separates us is not our natures being different. What separates us is that the one we worship is different. Embedded in our text in verse 25, there's a principle for us. And it is the principle that worship and service go together. Notice how easily Paul links the two in verse 25 when he says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You will serve whatever it is you worship. Worship by nature is giving your time, your energy, your attention, your money, and your affections to the one that you worship. 
Worship by nature is serving the one that you worship, whether it is God or your bank account or your ego or your career. Tim Keller, again, is helpful in this area when he says, we are telic creatures, purposed people. We have to live for something. There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it, and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. For those of us in the church, we worship God. And so, we find ourselves living for God, serving his purposes as they are revealed to us in his word. And so when we read in Romans chapter 1 that homosexuality is a sin, we believe it. And we live accordingly because our God has said so. But the secular world around us has exchanged God in order to worship what philosophers are calling the self. Thus, being true to yourself has become the rallying cry of the sexual revolution. The greatest sin for the revolutionaries is to deny yourself of who you feel yourself to be. Be authentic. That is the self being worshipped. We could illustrate this in many ways, but one is to see how the LGBTQ revolution is using empathy to bring people on board. The argument goes this way, put yourself in my shoes. You want to be loved. You want to experience romance. You want to be able to act on your attractions. You want to be true to how you feel inside your body. How would you feel if someone told you that you couldn't live in accordance with who you are? You have opportunities to be in relationships and to live out who you are inside. Shouldn't I have those same opportunities too? When we hear arguments such as these, it is an appeal to the God of our age. It is an appeal to the God of self. You worship the God of self, they should be able to too. You would never want someone to deny you the worship of your truest self. Why would you deny someone else? And many have fallen in line because to do otherwise would seem to jeopardize their own ability to be and to do whatever it is they want to be and want to do. It would threaten the God of themselves. But as Christians, we understand that we follow God, so it is not ourselves we serve, but him. In fact, the invitation to Christianity is given to us by Jesus in terms of self-denial. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we understand that the chasm between those of us who hold to a biblical sexual ethic and those who do not is the product of who we worship. When we worship the self, we will do everything we can to serve the self. And when we worship God, we will do what we can to serve him. And understanding this serves us in many ways as we seek to be a light to our neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family. For one, it names an idol that we certainly have not gotten past. 
It names an idol that rears its ugly head in our lives day after day after day and one that we too must battle. Second, it closes the perceived gap between those who are in the LGBTQ community and us. We know that idol well. We're not as different from one another as we might have thought. And third, it informs how we might approach and engage and speak to those in this community not necessarily beginning with actions, you should stop doing this, but with worship. Who is it that you are worshiping when you do this? We've covered a lot of ground. So our last question, with all of this in mind, is how should we respond to the test? How should we respond to the test that our society has posed to us? How should we answer when stopped on a subway in New York City and asked, what does your Bible say about homosexuality? Well, I can tell you what I said 15 years ago. First, I choked. (laughs) And then I said the only thing that came to my mind. The Bible says that it is a sin. The man who asked me the question frowned and said, that's what I thought you would say, and turned around and walked away from me. I can't tell you how many times I've replayed that moment in my mind. Sometimes with guilt, sometimes with regret. Oftentimes considering all the other ways I could have responded, wondering if I'd said something different, would he have stayed? Would the conversation have continued? Did I say something wrong? Was it right? Or was it simply incomplete? Fifteen years later, do you know what I've landed on? I've landed on the conviction that given the circumstances, what I said was not wrong. It was true, and it was faithful to Scripture. Now, I have definitely thought of many other things I would have liked to have said in addition to it. I would have loved to have said that it was a sin that Christ died to save you from. I would have loved to have explained that it's not a sin that makes someone unsavable. I would have loved to say that it is a sin much like many of my own. I would have loved to have told him that It is a sin Jesus invites us to repent of and to believe in him, knowing that he can replace it with something much better. While there are many things to be said when we are engaged with the question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? I still believe that beginning with homosexuality as a sin is a good place to start. In fact, I think it's the necessary place for us to start. I don't mean that in every conversation that you have with someone from the LGBTQ community that the first thing you have to say is that you're a sinner. But what I do mean is that we who aim to know and to abide by the truth must settle it within our minds that homosexuality is a sin before we try to say anything else. If we don't, it gets gray really fast and the waters get really muddy. We must understand that that lifestyle leads to no fruit. It does not lead to right relationship with God. It is part of the dark backdrop of humanity's helpless condition before a holy God, but it is the backdrop upon which the jewel of the gospel will shine all the brighter. If we're to be clear with our neighbors and our classmates and our co-workers and our friends that the good news of the gospel is indeed good news, we must also be clear about the bad news that the gospel saves us from. Homosexuality is a sin. It's only from there that we can speak to the hope and the grace and the goodness of God to save sinners. 
title, again, is The Test, the Text, and the Testimony. This message is so countercultural, it's so against the grain of the world that we live in, that it may, to some of us, not sound good at all. It may sound painful. It may, despite all the qualifications I've tried to put within it, still sound unloving. It may feel like it condemns those of us with same-sex attractions to a life of forced loneliness. It may feel like a fork in the road requiring us to choose between our God and our loved ones, our friends outside the church and our friends inside it. It may feel like faithful adherence to Romans 1 will do more harm than good. For those who feel that way, I want to end today by pointing you to the testimony of David that we find in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible at 176 verses. It is a love song, and it's a love song to God about his word, and it's also an extended prayer asking God to keep David faithful to the commandments that God gives. It begins with a promise that I would like us to hear as we conclude today. The promise begins, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. David begins with a promise. There is blessing to be had for those who follow God's word. But that doesn't mean that it was always easy for David himself to obey what God had commanded. For within the psalm itself, we see David wrestling to apply this very promise. For example, we read in verse 25, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Or verse 28, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Or verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The struggle is present even in the very last verse of the psalm where David says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. But the overarching testimony of this psalm is this. God's ways are best and the truly blessed life is found in obeying them, being true to his word, not in being true to ourselves. So my final word to us today is this. Don't follow your heart. Follow God and his word. When we do, we will find that the texts that test us are the texts meant to bless us. When we do, we will find that behind every painful no in Scripture is a far more glorious yes, given to us by a God who loves us even more than we love ourselves and whose plan for us is good from beginning to end. Will you trust him? Will you follow his ways? Let's pray that we will. And as I pray, those who are serving communion can join me up front along with the musicians. Lord God, we ask for your grace to believe David's testimony that there is blessing to be found in obeying your word 
Lord, that is a message that goes against the God of this age. For the self would have us believe that blessing is found only inside of us, in comfort, in giving ourselves what we so long, in obeying our passions. May we see this rightly as evidence that we are lost apart from you. That we can see ourselves in that dark backdrop that Paul is painting. That we are in need of something outside of ourselves to save us. And that something is you. Help us to believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.